It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, an era of equanimity in an egregious world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, co-founder of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200, wow, articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. And I am also the co-founder of all that stuff you just said. That's right. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of some of the highest quality medical kits on the planet at store.doomandbloom.net. Well, if you say so. (laughs) And I do. You do. And not to mention the goddess that's the hottest. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know what? We're going to tell you the basics here. We're going to tell you the conventional wisdom here. We're going to tell you the unconventional wisdom here. It's whatever it takes for your family to be medically self-reliant in times of trouble. But before we start, you better listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings, which we were almost in. Got close, didn't we? Oh, yeah. But not quite. That's right. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. That's right. Don't listen to us, but there might come a time when you are the highest medical resource left to your family, and our job is to make you effective in that role, so maybe you should listen to us. (laughs) Right? Hey, you know, many people are concerned about what appears to be a second wave of COVID-19, the pandemic disease caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and indeed some states that were relatively unaffected by the virus are now reporting pretty high numbers of cases, and people are beginning to get concerned about hospitals' abilities to deal with the more severe cases, Mm -hmm. right? Now, in previous podcasts, we stated that second waves we thought were pretty much inevitable. As soon as the host for the viruses emerged from our homes and we started intermingling, of course there were going to be an uptick. And that's just the way it is. One but thing, we cannot live inside our houses. That, that's <laughs> forever. true. Not forever. One thing you should know about these pandemic waves is that they're going to have peaks and they're going to have troughs. I guess that's why we call them waves. Mm-hmm. And you can do things to delay them. And you may be able to make the peak a little bit lower, but you just can't stop them any more than you can stop the waves in the ocean. In the case of a very contagious disease like COVID-19, you can only hope to flatten the curve right things that we've talked about so much and not overwhelm the medical infrastructure's ability to handle the caseload that's what makes a pandemic go from being bad stuff to being apocalyptic stuff right and so that's the thing now you may have heard you know cnn or someplace call this apocalyptic it is not apocalyptic it is something that is a bad thing but we are indeed doing the right stuff that we need to do to get over it over the course of time. Apocalyptic would have been the grocery stores not refilling once the shelves were empty. That would be apocalyptic. not being delivered, that's right. The hospitals being so overwhelmed that you couldn't go there for any reason whatsoever, even COVID. There's totally overwhelmed, electricity shut off, water not working, 
people not showing up to fix anything anymore that that we're talking that's apocalyptic so that's what we need to do right is we need to realize and count our blessings that it never has gotten to that point as a matter of fact we seem to be doing okay in terms of cases even even though you read about deaths and things like that only about one percent of active cases in the u.s right now are in serious or critical condition in the hospital that is that is pretty good news because it was higher earlier in uh, maybe it's a new strain better statistics or better statistics it does it does mutate, and also it does mutate absolutely but we'd have to look into how much research they're doing in the new cases uh, genome versus the older cases and see if there's been any kind of change that they can point to there are at least several different strains there are maybe more maybe 20 strains how many now that's right it's very very true now a pandemic disease does not begin everywhere in a country as large as ours all at once some places that are experiencing a rise in cases are in actually their first wave their first wave we are in the first wave so we've been ramping up testing and that's been picking up a lot of well cases that may not have been picked up before uh, we've done over 36 million tests in the united states and in some areas a quarter or more folks are testing positive indeed they've been exposed may have may have actually some immunity we don't really know how well the immunity does develop after getting covid we're testing a lot and well, uh, it, it wasn't long after this, after New York, that we started having cases down here in Florida where we are. Most of them are very mild, some even asymptomatic. When alarms went off in places like New York and California, hospitals elsewhere should have already had plans of action for when the really contagious COVID-19 hits their area. And why should they have been ready for the invasion of a new contagious infectious disease? Usually, people are pretty surprised when there is one, a new one that is. But really, we have had a lot of epidemics just in the last 20 years. The swine flu, SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika, chikungunya, and more, gosh, all sorts of different viruses that have come through and caused epidemics, but not maybe pandemics, besides swine flu, that is, and the current COVID-19. Now, we've known for a long time how fast infectious disease can spread, and we've had years to prepare for something like this happening. But like we've said many times, the most, most pernicious way that an infection spreads is not due to airborne or contact means, but because of complacency. That's right, not being prepared, being overconfident, bad news all the way around. Now, the Spanish flu of 100 years ago, that's a good example of second waves and yes third waves after it slowed down the spanish flu in the spring of 1918 that was its first wave it came back at least twice within the next year and the second wave was deadlier than the first the virus infected 500 million people worldwide that's about a third of the people that were alive at the time killed about 50 million victims and of course you know that that is a lot worse than what we have been dealing with with COVID-19, and I don't think That's we're right. going. I don't think we're going to reach those kinds of numbers in our in today's world. 
Second waves now, of course, may affect different segments of populations differently. In 1918, for example, the first wave of the Spanish flu sickened poorer folks, while the second affected more affluent people that may not have had as much contact with lower socioeconomic groups. Money, their money didn't help, though. The second wave actually turned out to be deadlier than the first. I think that we're going to be experiencing second waves, third waves, maybe more of COVID-19 over the next year or so, and that they're going to appear at different times in different parts of the nation. They may even be entirely new mutated versions of the virus, new strains that we haven't even experienced just yet. And we have actually identified quite a number so far. The strain currently causing a rise in new cases seems to be affecting young adults more, but appears somewhat less lethal than previous strains. Infectious disease outbreaks can last a very long time. Now, how long? The plague decimated the population of Europe between 1347 and 1351. That's several years. but And it didn't go away completely for about a century. It returned just as deadly 100 years later in the 1500s and the 1600s. Even to this day, we record a few cases in the American West reported every year yet people are suffering from covid fatigue they are itching to get out and about and i'm sure you are too if you haven't been they i mean, all i can say is that people hope that the hot weather of summer is going to slow the spread of covid or not only covid but any other infectious or influenza type disease it does just like it does in many influenza influenza epidemics now, flu viruses and coronaviruses aren't identical, and the break that we hope to get in the summer of this year just is not yet materializing. That is something that's, well, not too good. That means we still have to wear masks, especially in situations where we can't socially distance. We have to keep away from crowds, wash hands, use hand sanitizer. Now, you don't, doesn't mean you have to wear masks everywhere. If, you, if your beaches are open, you do not have to wear a mask at the beach unless you're in some kind of beach where there is not six feet difference the space between you and the next person on their beach towel. As far, right. as far as I'm concerned and as far as the CDC recommendations go, basically masks are for situations where there is the possibility that you're not going to be able to social distance. If you have to pass somebody in the aisle in the supermarket for example things like that so you don't have to wear a mask for everything you don't have to wear a mask as you attempt to hike the entire length of the Appalachian Trail for example uh, and it's just something that a lot of people don't realize we see a lot of people driving their car they're alone in their car but they're driving their car with a mask on we see them at the beach sometimes with the mask with masks on we see them uh, walking along boardwalks and stuff like that i mean this is just in the last I know, right? couple, few weeks that we've seen <laughs> or even just this. in the past drive 15 minutes ago yes that's right well but that's absolutely i will right. say if your um county or your state um has rules and regulations about being indoors that could determine whether you have to wear a mask even if the grocery store is empty i know all of our grocery stores require us to wear a mask Right. Whether there's anyone inside other than the clerks or not, we have to wear a mask. So that's just the way it is in our county. So you just have to follow the rules and also the common sense. Right. Even if it's not Use required, 
if you or the people you may be in contact with when you come home are vulnerable, you definitely want to be taking care of yourself, washing your hands, using hand sanitizer, socially distancing, and using a mask when you can't be far away from somebody. That's exactly right. Follow common sense. That's right. And by the way, if anybody needs masks, I think Amy even has some N95 masks that are on your store, right? I have KN95. KN95. Yes, do, I think it's the Chinese version. I will of tell the you N95s. what. I cut those open. I cut one open. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my second batch. The first batch I had had two layers of melt blown material inside, which is great. Uh, it was a five layer mask, but it had a different uh, interior la- uh, filter. But this one has three layers of the melt blown material, which really gets the smaller particles. Mm-hmm. So. It's actually even better than the last group. So they're yeah, they're nice. Yeah, I mean, I don't have FDA approval because they're from China, but they are a nice mask, and I feel comfortable wearing them. If you had COVID and that's all I had, that's what I would wear. I would choose that over a surgical mask. Or a cloth covering. Or a cloth covering any day. Absolutely. Well, there you go. You know, we've spent... I, I think we probably haven't gone through a show in the last few months without discussing COVID-19, but we should take a look back down the line at the last major pandemic or maybe a little bit more. I mentioned the Spanish flu. You know, you can learn a lot of history's lessons here. And if you can understand the history of what happened before, you might not repeat the mistakes that were made back then. And that's the problem. We're canceling out a lot of our history these days. It's called cancel culture and the problem is, is that that means people are going to forget about history and we're going to wind up ending up doing the same silly things or stupid things that we've done to get ourselves in trouble last time. But anyhow, if you're willing to listen, definitely listen to history. So let me tell you a little bit of, about uh, maybe a brief history of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919. The Spanish flu pandemic, I told you, was responsible for infecting huge quantities of people of significant percentage of the world population and killed unlike covid has killed 15 million people i don't think we're going to get to the point that covid is going to kill 50 million people first the thing about spanish flu is that i i think in general people think that it came from spain but nope well we owe the spaniards an apology during world war one nations that were involved in the struggle including the united states didn't allow the publication of bad news that can harm the war effort, things that might have helped us out maybe in uh, subsequent conflicts, uh, things like, say, a highly contagious epidemic in the middle of a war probably wasn't conducive to helping out the war effort. And sure enough, you if you belong to Germany or if you were in France or you were England or, or the United States, you did not hear about this epidemic. The country of Spain, however, was neutral during World War I, and it didn't censor its press. And so whatever news you got about the new virus was usually from Spanish journalists. The pandemic became known as the Spanish flu because whatever news there was about it seemed to come out of Spain. So whenever the Spanish flu first appeared, they think it was around March 1918, it had all the landmarks of a seasonal flu but it soon became recognized as much more contagious and in some cases it was deadly some believe the flu started in china 
Uh, but one of the first cases reported was actually not in Asia or Europe, but the United States. This was a guy named Albert Gitchell, and he was a U.S. Army cook in Haskell County, Kansas, who was hospitalized with a very high fever. Yes, it is possible the flu started right here in the USA, at least this strain, this, this strain of the Spanish flu. Still a point of contention, though, a hundred years later, a lot of people still think it came from China. Some people think it came from the U.S. It makes sense that a cook might become infected because a lot of influenza viruses mutate from swine and birds, swine flu, avian flu, bird flu. Uh, and, and these animals used as food-producing livestock obviously get into the hands of cooks. Anyway, the virus spent, uh, spread quickly throughout army installations at this in the one in kansas was home to about 54,000 troops and by the end of the month 1100 of them have been hospitalized about 38 of them died after developing pneumonia so a lot a lot of troops got infected not so many died as u.s troops deployed for the war in europe in 1917 they sort of carried the spanish flu with them and throughout april and may the first wave of the virus spread like wildfire throughout a bunch of different countries, Spain, Italy, France, England. England. Some sources estimate that three-quarters of the French soldiers were infected and probably about half of the British troops. Yet the first wave of the virus just was not particularly deadly. And I mean, it was just similar to seasonal flu. People had maybe fever lasting a few days and then just sort of, sort of got better. By August, people were hopeful that the worst was over, but it was really just the end of the first wave. Apparently, a mutated version of the flu emerged later that could kill healthy young adults. And this became the second wave, and it was deadlier than the first. It spread to the four corners of the earth as all these soldiers headed home as World War I came to a close. It, cl it ended around November, I think, November 11th, as a matter of fact, 1918, I think, is uh, Armistice Day, or the day that they actually uh, ended World War I. So, not to downplay today's risk from COVID-19, but from September to November of 1918, this second more lethal wave of the Spanish flu went crazy, crazy, crazy out of control. In the United States, 195,000 Americans died from the Spanish flu just in the month of October of that year. So, it was pretty darn lethal. Oop. And what do you got there? Who's stop sending us messages in the middle of our? I know, right? <laughs> Someone had something to say, yeah. baby. That's so funny. So anyhow, let's talk about a little bit about seasonal flu. Seasonal flu usually claims victims among uh, infants and toddlers, also the elderly and the people who are, that are infirm have a lot of uh, medical problems. And if you looked at a graph, it would look like a U. It would have a, a, you went if you went from age used age and the number of people that got it you would see a graph that looked like a U. You see a lot of people very young and a lot of people very old that have it, and the two ends of the graph would be high and there'd be a trough in the bottom. However, the second wave of the Spanish flu made a graph that looked more like a W because it not only killed those you very young people and very old people, but it killed a lot of people that were in the 25 to 35 year age group. And today... COVID-19 is affecting more people in this age group right now as our country is attempting to reopen. Now, the good news is that except for some hot spots, 
uh, like Houston maybe, most of these younger cases so far are mild or asymptomatic and the percentage that wind up needing ventilators are, are very small. But the high numbers of Spanish flu deaths in these healthy young adults mystified doctors at the time. They didn't know why people that were young were dying from it. But we believe now that the deaths were caused by something known as cytokine storm. When the human body is attacked by a virus, the immune system sends messenger proteins called cytokines to promote helpful inflammation. Now, in the Spanish flu, however, like COVID-19 can do, this system, part of the immune system of, of human beings, had a tendency to go haywire. And if you get a massive overload of these cytokines, you wind up having so much inflammation it causes a fatal inflammation in the lungs. And as a matter of fact, when autopsies were done on soldiers that, that died from uncertain causes from the Spanish flu, the, they, they, the doctors in World War I, likened the appearance on autopsy to the effects of gas warfare. Now at the time, most public health officials were indeed aware of these outbreaks, but they were unwilling to impose quarantines on uh, teens, unlike what we're doing now and where every uh, health official seems to want to quarantine the country for the next five years and, <laughs> and keep you in your house. It's a little long there, but they yes. Were the opposite <laughs> Probably. Back they were the opposite back then, but they had the same concerns. Their concerns were that it would cripple the economy to lock down permanently or semi-permanently. It would cripple the economy and certainly it would have harmed the war effort. Well, you know, we are actually sort of at war now or at war in Afghanistan or at war in Iraq in a sense. No, we're not really, but we are in cold wars with North Korea and all sorts of people. And anything that cripples the economy or like these semi-permanent lockdowns honestly would affect any kind of war effort and we just don't really realize it but the people in world war one they did realize it and so indeed they didn't impose a lot of quarantines they just had people go through it there were also there were also physician and nursing shortages due to all these military enlistments back then when a war was declared people actually lined up at the recruitment office say you don't see that anymore but that's what used to happen back in those days and that included doctors and nurses uh, the American Red Cross actually caused some problems because they, at the time, they refused to use African-American nurses until very late in the pandemic, although they really needed many more. They needed all the help. Right, they could get, right. Everyone equally. Right. Many more medical personnel than, than were available. And the, the technology, that wasn't sufficient to quell the crisis. You just couldn't see viruses back then. You know that you couldn't actually see a virus until the 1930s indeed that's when the viruses were really first uh, there, there were people that hypothesized that there were such things as viruses but they certainly and i talk about it in our book uh, alton's pandemic preparedness guide but they didn't actually see them so most health officials back in World War I were convinced that the virus was bacterial in nature, some bacteria they just couldn't see just yet. It turned out to be a virus. By December 1918, the deadly second wave of the Spanish flu, that finally passed. But indeed, there was a third wave. Now, that one seemed to emerge in Australia, and that was in January of 1919. It traveled back to Europe and to the United States, 
and it's thought that even President Woodrow Wilson might have been infected. He was a president during World War One. The mortality rate of the third rate, a third wave, actually as bad as the second wave. But the good news is the end of the war in November 1918 removed the conditions that allowed the disease to spread quite as rapidly. The right, soldiers were right, home. The right? hosts were also not huddled up together in trenches or in ships or in barracks. Exactly. They were all jammed up together. They could spread out a little bit more when they went home to their families. Exactly. Uh, still. Millions more died, and by the end of, uh, or by the middle, towards the end of 1919, the Spanish flu finally petered out. And are there lessons to be learned from the Spanish flu? Now that you know a little bit more about it, I, I'll tell you, that's up to you. It depends on how much you're willing to listen. But I say to ignore history's lessons it are, is basically to repeat its mistakes. Well, let's talk about something purely off that topic, but let's talk about something that is indeed... Uh, some are related. Now, regardless of a lot of these municipalities closing public beaches and pools, in warm weather, a lot of people head out to the waterfront for recreation. And some people wind up getting in trouble. And so uh, our friend Jim Cobb of Prepper Survival Guide asked us to write about risk when people go into the water. I'm not talking about Jaws. I'm talking about something <laughs> just as scary, though, and that's drowning. Humans can't survive underwater for very long, so significant risks do exist for people who aren't careful. And drowning has got to be one of the most harrowing, maybe heartbreaking, water-related injury, especially when it happens to kids. About 90% of drownings take place in freshwater venues like rivers, lakes, just swimming pools, and the rest occur, obviously, in seawater. There was a 2004 report from the World Health Organization. They actually counted drowning as the third leading cause of death from unintentional injury. And from the year 2005 to the year 2009, there were an average of close to 4,000 drownings every year in the United States. And, but there were also a lot of non-fatal water submersion injuries, many involving brain damage. Those were actually many times greater than just the 4,000. So who is it that drowns? There are a number of factors that increase the risk of drowning. They include uh, poor swimming ability. Face it, if you can't swim, your chances of drowning increase. Failure to recognize your own physical limitations can exhaust you on the trail. It can exhaust you in the water as well and cause your demise. Um, Poor supervision, that's a big one. Drowning happens relatively quickly and oftentimes without a lot of noise, right? Because you have water... You're breathing in water, so you obviously are not be able to scream very much. What people that are screaming when they are uh, drowning are not yet drowning. Right. Uh, they are in need of help, but they are not yet drowning. Even when lifeguards are present, sometimes even they may not notice when you're actually in distress. So unsupervised small children, if they could die even in a bathtub. Now, drowning, the second leading cause of death in children, 1 to 14 years of age, especially in the summer, uh, surpassed only by maybe motor vehicle accidents. People or kids that are under 5 tend to drown in swimming pools. Um, teenagers, young adults, mostly in natural water se- settings. Uh, most drowning deaths occur in males, I guess 80, about 80%, and I guess that just shows that males are a little less wise <laughs> or judicious in their decision-making than, than females. I think a little smarter. and other uh, Females are a little smarter, too, and so uh, 
that probably goes into it. Location, your home swimming pool, most likely place that young children drown, and most adult drowning events occur in wilderness natural settings. Uh, of course, if there's a lack of a barrier, if you have very young kids, you might consider a pool fence. Pool fences that separate the pool from a yard reduce a child's risk of drowning by, get this, 83%. So that's a lot. Now, if you're out on, on the open water, 80% of drowning deaths, 88% as a matter of fact, uh, of drowning deaths involve people that were not wearing life vests. So you should be wearing a life vest if you are on the water. Alcohol. Half of deaths by drowning in adolescents and adults involved some impaired judgment coordination, oftentimes caused by drinking. And um, there are people who have certain medical underlying medical conditions, people like um, epileptics, people with seizure disorders, so could drown even in the bathtub. That's one of the most common deaths um, by injury for those who have a seizure disorder. So take showers. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. probably a good idea yes so how do you drown let's talk about the physical what physically happens the primary urge to breathe is triggered by a rising carbon dioxide level okay what do you do your bo human body exchanges oxygen it brings oxygen in and exhales carbon dioxide right that's called gas exchange oxygen in carbon dioxide out drowning begins at the point where a person is unable to keep their head uh, above water, or their nose and mouth, above water. Uh, the actual inhalation of water into the lungs actually happens later on. It's not the first thing that happens when you, when you drown. Once a person's unable to keep their mouth above water, there's a cascade of events that occurs that leads to a fatality. You may be surprised to know that the, cons the symptoms considered to be so classic for drowning, like flailing around and screaming, oftentimes you don't see them or hear them at all. There are involuntary movements of arms and legs that may occur underwater and not splash. I mean, because you are underwater, essentially. And lack of air, no screaming, uh, for help certainly not loud enough to be heard. And from a distance, it may not even be obvious to people that... I, we were in Sanibel Island just a short time ago with our friends, uh, the Spiracos from the Survival Podcast. And there were people that were swimming way the hell out there. And if they were drowning, we probably would not have really have been able to tell. Time. We would also saw shadowy things swimming by them, also. Ooh, yes. That look like sharks. Right, and there. And if there was a shark attack, I mean, we know we would have bolted after these people to try and save them, but it would have taken us a while. It would have taken us like fifteen far. minutes to get out there. I, I, it amazes really me how far out people do do swim in uh, in the summer. Well, anyhow. Uh, all these involuntary movements of arms and legs and stuff like that, you know, may not cause splashing. And once you are have not enough air to scream for help, well, you know, you're just not going to be able to be rescued by other folks. It's important, therefore, to look into the following, look for the following behaviors if if you're responsible for your family at the beach or at the local municipal pool. Uh, anybody who has their mouth and nose below the level of the water, keep an eye on them. Anybody who's obviously freaking out, eyes wide with fear, head tilted back, mouth open, trying to gasp for air, uh, attempting to swim to shore, for example, without making any progress, uh, or just flailing about, uh, these folks are obviously in trouble. There are supposed to be four stages of drowning. 
And the fr in the first stage of drowning, the victim holds her breath voluntarily underwater as long as they possibly can. And this can last only until carbon dioxide in the body reaches too high a level. And once that happens, the second stage occurs, and that's when water begins to enter the airways as the urge to breathe becomes impossible to suppress. Although the trachea goes into spasm to prevent aspirating more water, that causes a panic. And the panic consumes more oxygen, actually speeds the loss of consciousness. And having, having said that, an unconscious person rescued with a sealed airway due to spasm actually still chance, stands a pretty good chance of recovery. Once that person is unconscious, though, the open trachea, the trachea opens, allowing for free movement of water into the lungs. That's bad. Fluid in the lungs prevents oxygenation. That leads to cardiac arrest and deterioration of brain cells. In the fourth stage, injury to the brain becomes irreversible after several minutes without oxygen. And near drownings, luckily, are usually found within two minutes, but the fatal events can, are usually found after 10 minutes or more. The interesting thing is the younger the person, the better their chances. In one instance, a child submerged in cold water, water just above freezing, managed to survive after 66 minutes, apparently, underwater without apparent neurological damage. That, to me, is like a miracle. That uh, is beyond a miracle. That is just crazy. Uh, it's thought that hypothermia and these kinds of events may slow the metabolism and might allow for a longer period of time before the development of severe brain damage, but still 66 minutes, wow. Uh, when a death occurs in water, it's usually evaluated by autopsy. At that point, they'll see water in the lungs indicates that the victim was at, still alive at the point of submersion, by the way, uh, that if somebody was killed elsewhere and thrown into water, the, interestingly enough, you don't see a lot of water in the lungs, which is sort of strange absence of water in the lungs sometimes can be seen also when airway spasm persists until the um, heart fails or goes into cardiac arrest that's known as a dry drowning but more often that's seen someone who died before the, the being immersed in water so staying safe in the water in summer weather Beating the heat often means the dunk in the pool or lake. We know that, and that's great. Here are some things you should know, though, to keep your family and yourself safe. Take swimming lessons. Make sure everybody knows how to swim early in their life. You know, teach your kids to swim early. A lot of people do it with babies, which is I know. an awesome thing. Uh, don't don't go into swimming swimming depth water if you don't know how to swim. Very simple, common sense. Uh, and by the way, swimming lessons are provided by a lot of municipalities throughout the country, so the, that's the thing. And and they say that the best time to teach children to swim is between the ages of one and four. Be sure to take CPR classes, understanding resuscitation, very important when it comes to aiding drowning victims. Strictly supervise any youngsters in the water whenever kids are allowed are involved. Strict attention has to be given by a responsible and sober, S-O-B-E-R, adult. For preschool children, the adult should be close enough to touch the child and not involved in any other activity while supervising. The buddy system is important. Everyone, even adults, should always swim with another person or persons. Uh, on the beach, beware of rip currents. Knowing the meaning of flags on supervised beaches uh, is important. High waves, discolored water, debris channels of water moving away from shore that those are signs of dangerous conditions if caught in a rip current swim parallel to shore until free then diagonally back 
towards the beach. Foam or inflatable toys don't take the place of life jackets, noodles, and water wings, things like that, aren't acceptable as substitutes for life vests, especially on boating trips. Be firm about using the right equipment, even for adults. Pool fencing, of course. Four-sided fencing, four feet high with a high latch. Safest way to prevent small kids from jumping or falling into the pool, getting in trouble. Don't leave toys near the pool after swimming. Be aware of the water. Thunder showers oftentimes whip up the water with strong winds, and that increases the risk of drowning. You should always be physically fit enough to swim. Swimming involves exertion, so make sure that you're up to the challenge. Don't drink alcohol. Any water activity becomes more dangerous, both to you and children you supervise if you're drinking. Don't hyperventilate either. Some professional deep divers often hyperventilate to decrease carbon dioxide and depress the urge to breathe. That's great for them, but taking rapid deep breaths to see who can stay underwater longest in the pool sometimes causes people to black out. I mean, it could lead to you drowning. And of course, if you suffer from a seizure disorder, use the shower, not the bathtub. Anyone with a history of convulsions should undertake swimming activities only with one-on-one supervision. In the wilderness, by the way, be wary of river crossings because fast-moving water can knock you right off your feet, even if the water is just a foot deep. At the beach or in the wilderness, you might encounter a distressed person in the water. Your first response is going to be jump in to jump in and help, but remember the hazards that are causing the problems are still right there. And also the person in question will likely be panicked and flailing around. You should always call other people to help if possible. Your goal is to help the person in distress while avoiding injury and reducing the risk that you're going to become the next victim. To accomplish this, remember four words. Reach, throw, row, and go. Reach out to the person with a stick or an oar. Throw the person a lifeline, a life preserver, or other floating object. Row out to the person in a canoe or other boat if available. And go into the water only when there is no other option. If you must go into the water, recovery should be done in such a way that doesn't wind up submerging the rescuer due to the victim's desperate attempts to stay above water. A buoyant object, always helpful, but approaching from behind or offering one hand can work as well. Once a person that's drowning or near drowning is in hand, well, any objects weighing them down should be removed. Towing the patient from behind with the face well up above water can be accomplished, especially if you have some training. Once out of the water, put the individual in a supine position, check for breathing. If unconscious but breathing, place in the standard recovery position. CPR could be required, if the, certainly if the victim isn't breathing. Unlike in a typical cardiac arrest, five initial rescue breaths are recommended, and then chest compressions instead of just the 30 chest compressions right away. So that, that's important. So unlike, it's unlike in a typical cardiac arrest, you're going to give five initial rescue breaths in a near-drowning case. This is because of the basic lack, problem is the lack of oxygen rather than cardiac so much. It's not that you have a really clogged coronary artery disease, just that you haven't gotten any oxygen in your system. Some believe in attempting to expel water with these Heimlich-like maneuvers. This honestly should be avoided. There is no solid object that's obstructing the airways and these motions could delay the start of actual ventilatory actions. Uh, Also, abdominal thrusts raise a chance of vomiting stomach contents into open airways that can increase the risk of dying. 
Victims who arrive at a medical facility with a regular heartbeat and spontaneous breathing usually recover with pretty darn well. Those requiring resuscitation, however, who are going to need intensive care may end up with long-term handicaps because of the lack of oxygen. So that's important. In circumstances when you encounter, I want you to just remember, when you encounter a swimmer in distress, consider the Red Cross's chain of drowning survival. S, shout for help. R, remove the person from the water in a safe manner. And in normal times, have somebody call emergency medical services. If alone, begin resuscitation efforts for two minutes before calling emergency medical services. Uh, begin CPR using both chest compressions and rescue breathing. Chest compressions alone are insufficient for drowning victims. And that's different from the normal uh, routine instructions these days. A CPR mask, good for emergency situations to supply oxygen to the lungs without exposing the resuscitator to microbes, blood, and other bodily fluids. Not a bad idea. We have CPR masks in most of our kits, uh, maybe all of our kits, I think. So be certain to find some latex-free versions like what we have that prevent allergic reactions. Uh, CPR masks should always be in the section of your medical kit that is most easily accessed. And if available, if you have it, use an automated external defibrillator, an AED, an assistive in transport to a modern medical facility if there is one. Outcomes worsen significantly in an austere or wilderness environment where you can't get people to help in time. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We hope that you will continue to follow us on the Survival Medicine Podcast. I'm Joe Alton for Amy Alton, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.